This is the Glasses by Day Geek by Night podcast episode 4. I'm Matt and today I'm going to be reviewing and moaning about some geeky stuff. On today's show I have geek news including Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin, the Loki trailer, Wonder Woman, Secret Invasion and the Invincible main villain for season 2. Then I have my top 10 X-Men, I have what I'm watching this week, comics to read before you die and character of the week. Geek news. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles The Last Ronin painted a grimmer, darker and more mature Turtles than we've ever seen before. Many of us would have loved to have seen an animated or live action movie of the same name. Unfortunately, if you're looking for a movie, you're out of luck. But if you're a gamer, then this could be right up your street. The Last Roman is becoming a game. This will be a Turtles game like no other. Every Turtles game that's ever been, you've been able to play as all four Turtles and all their allies, such as Master Splinter, April O'Neil or Casey Jones. This game will be primarily a one-player, a one-character game, with the hope of flashback scenes that you could play as the characters who are no longer with us. For those of you who haven't read The Last Ronin, mute for the next 10 seconds starting now. So, The Last Last Ronin is set in an alternate future where Michelangelo watched his brother and Master Splinter die in in a war against the Foot Clan, leading him to adopt a new persona, The Last Ronin, and seek revenge against those who killed his family. Obviously, the game will target older audiences, which I'm sure we can all get on board with. Loki Season 2 is set to debut exclusively on Disney Plus on the 6th of October. Loki Season 1 ended with Sylvie, Loki's variant, stabbing and killing Kang. Unbeknownst to Sylvie, this was Kang's plan all along, to unleash a multiverse of Kangs hell-bent on conquering all realities. The trailer shows Loki time-slipping, different timelines, glimpses of a multiversal war that you might have missed if because it was gone in a blink of an eye. They go back to He Who Remains Citadel, new variants including the Kang variant. Allegedly there's a new villain, a new and unusual villain appearance in the, in the next series. The trailer doesn't give much away, but teases enough that if you're like me, you're going to be re-watching the first season before the 6th of October. Gal Gadot seems to have avoided the chopping block, surviving the DC Cinematic Universe cull. I wonder how she did that. I guess we'll never know. The Trinity is now a solo act. The fact that there is a Wonder Woman film in the works says a lot. It suggests that Gal Gadot's version of the Amazonian Princess is going to be part of the new incarnation of the universe. I may be in the minority, but I never—I was never actually a fan of the first two films. I like her in Zack Snyder's Justice League, but other than that, I can—I can't really. Yeah, I can take or leave her character. In my eyes, Man of Steel was a much better film than both of the Wonder Woman movies, yet Cavill is gone. Time will tell. Secret Invasion is finished. Although I said previously that I was a fan of the first few episodes of the series, I, like most people, were a little bit meh about the last episode. Secret Invasion is about a group of scrolls that Nick Fury and Carl Danvers said that they were going to find a home for. And they haven't done that, so now the scrolls have taken it into, well, some of them, have taken matters into their own hands and set their eyes on making Earth theirs. It looked to be a good series in the beginning, giving me the old spy movie vibes um, when the first episode streamed. Unfortunately, I feel like they lost their way towards the end, focusing too much on the super scroll aspect. For anyone who doesn't know, the super scroll wasn't just created for the series. Basically, the, the Super Scroll made his first appearance in 1963 in Fantastic Four number 18. He had the powers of all four members of the Fantastic Four, which made him incredibly powerful. Not only 
do I feel like Marvel missed a chance to insert the first family into the MCU, but also missed the beauty of the character. Super Scrolls are overpowered, and that is an understatement. The last episode had some good aspects and some bad aspects. It showed Nick Fury's softer side, which is a good side and a good aspect and a bad aspect. It showed his softer side with his wife Vara, who was a Skrull. That could go either way for me. It creates a new character in Amelia Clark's Gaia. Gaia is now one of the most powerful beings in the whole MCU. The women are seriously winning in the power department for the MCU at the moment. You know, we've got Wanda, who's incredibly powerful, but gone nutty cuckoo. You've got Carol Danvers, incredibly powerful, off-world. You've got Gaia, who has the power of what, you know... She basically, scrolls could already blend in using their shapeshifting ability, but now Gaia has the ability of what... She's got Iron Man 3's Extremis, which means she can heal from any attack. She's got the Hulk, super strong, Captain Marvel, Ghost... From the Ant-Man and the Wasp, she's got Cap in there, she's got Corvus Glaive, Thanos, Outrider, Proxima Midnight, Abomination, Mantis, Cull of Sidon, Black Panther, Drax Corg, Ebony Moore, Frostbeast, the Chitari from Avengers Assemble, she's got Valkyrie, Thor, Gamora, Thor, Thor, Flora, Colossus, can't even get that one out, the Winter Soldier, this literally puts her a cut above every other hero and villain in the whole universe, it makes the other heavy hitters look like garbage. Even the Hulk can't stand up to her. Thor's Garney can't do anything against her because she she's got his powers plus other people's. It's what what Marvel is gonna have gonna do with this character is anyone's guess. Hopefully, unlike the celestial head and arm that emerged from the Indian Ocean and Eternals, Guy will actually be spoken about again. You can't create a you know a you know a power like this. And then just go, oh, we'll just ignore it now. She's just, yeah, she's she's disappeared. It doesn't make any sense. So hopefully she'll show up during an Avengers level threat and actually kick some ass. The series also gives us a new thing to stress and obsess about. How long was the Skrull Roadie about? You know, if you're like me, you're thinking, how long was, was Roadie a Skrull? It's been suggested that Rhodey had been replaced after Civil War due to him being in a hospital gown when he was found. That, to me, is ridiculous. I kind of feel like all the stories we've had with him, you you hope that it's a lot later on than that. So, does he know about the blip? Does he know about Tony's death? It just gives me more questions than answers, which hopefully will get answered in Armor Wars. Next up, I have Invincible's main villain for Season 2. Angstrom Levi will be a main, the main antagonist of the season, which should be pretty interesting. Angstrom is a man from Mark's universe who has the ability to travel to other universes, which means that it brings something that has been pretty successful in comic book movies recently. Multiversal travel brings in so many variations of the storyline that could be used. Do I hope they bring in some heavy hitters for the rest of the season? Absolutely. But Angstrom is one of Mark's worst villains and is one of he's the one that almost makes Mark cross the line to begin with. Angstrom Levy starts out as a, a man trying to get gain knowledge about his powers, gathering up alternate versions of himself and uh, from other dimensions, hoping to mine mine their minds for knowledge of every universe, so that when he travels somewhere, he knows the ins and outs of that universe he drops into. Angstrom joins forces with the Mauler Twins. So we met the Mauler Twins in the first season of uh, of Invincible. So 
they're the blue guys, they're the ones that, there's always two of them, when one dies, the other one clones the other one, and they can't remember who's the clone and who's not after that, so the idea is they're always arguing about who's the clone, who's not the clone, so he asked them all the twins to build him a machine to take that knowledge. Invincible eventually arrives at the scene and a fight breaks out between the Mauler twins um, and Invincible. And then Angstrom brings in alternate versions of the Mauler twins. A big accident happens. There's an explosion. It kills all the Mauler twins. Deforms Angstrom and kills all all of the versions of him from other universes. Angstrom blames Invincible and vows revenge, you know, because that's what all the villains do in these aspects. They never blame themselves. So, Angstrom has found out that Mark Grayson is Invincible through his other universal travels. So, he travels back to their universe to exact revenge on Mark and his family. Whether we get the full story in the season or whether it's just the, you know, you know, a part of it so if we get the build up to then next season it'll be Angstrom taking his revenge we don't we don't know at this point but I'm excited to see where they go through it lastly with Geek News I have yeah, the X-Men at the moment they're down on their luck and definitely as of late they're really royally screwed Orcus a terrorist group attacked the Hellfire Gala killing a bunch of mutants and the and some of the X-Men then banished all mutants and blamed on Krakoa Jean Grey has been killed by the traitor Moira McTaggart. Jean, before she dies, entrusts Firestar with her secret mission to infiltrate the Orcus group, leading everyone to believe that Firestar is the traitor. So she's in she's in a bit of trouble now because all the X-Men hate her and the Orcus group hate her as well. So we've got Scott Summer. Scott Summers at the moment, he's in a world of trouble. His missus is dead, the you know, as are two hundred and fifty thousand mutants. He's been captured and has been tortured. His eyelids have been sewn shut, which for someone who blast his powers blast out of his eyes, that can't be great. Uh, this seems like a fight the X-Men can't win. They've been down a look before and come back swinging, so I look forward to seeing how they get themselves out of this. This got me thinking about my favourite X-Men, not just the Omega level mutants, but the ones I like the most, which leads me into the next segment, ranking my top 10 X-Men. That'll be that'll be just the heroes, as I know that a lot of X-Men villains have made it way into an X-Men team throughout the years, so I'm ranking the good guys thrown and through. And when I say good guys thrown and through, I'm basically talking about the ones that are generally speaking a good guy, okay? So anyone anyone wants to leave me any feedback saying this one was a villain at some point, great, that's fine. But actually I'm talking about the ones that are mainly heroes. In at number ten, I have Morph. I'm not talking about the Morph from the 90s cartoon. I'm talking about the current mutant using the name. So we've got Benjamin Deeds. He's been around since 2012, so in all intensive purposes, he's a new mutant. His powers manifested after the Phoenix Force fixed the mutant gene. So when it dispersed from you know, Scott and the rest of them after they took on the Phoenix Force. He was created by Brian, Ma- Brian Michael Bendis and Stuart Inman's. I've talked about Stuart Inman's art style before, so I'm not sure if that was half the half the thing. So good writing and great artwork drew me to the character, as it's go- as it's going to be quite evident with this list. His powers are cool, and I think that you know, I think this is what put him at number ten for me, as well as his um, running on Canny X Men in the 2012 incarnation. He he's an openly gay character that was secret, and he was created that way. So he isn't straight character that they thought. I know will make him gay. He was gay. That's you know that that's important for me because I kind of feel like they do this with a few 
you know, openly straight characters, they think, oh, well, we can make him gay. And I kind of feel like, well, he wasn't gay before, why make him gay now? Um, he can transmorph, fusing his look to anyone else's. So he can look at you and morph to look like you, becoming a close copy, you know, in looks and sound, which is cool in itself. His second power, though, is even better than his transform, you know, and it's called transformative psychochemical influence. It's a unique ability with the X-Men in which he can cause someone to like him by making them feel good, calm, pleasant, and relaxed while he's looking at them. So, he, you know, he, can, he uses this along with his transmorph power, becoming a face that they trust to infiltrate anywhere, and that's themselves. You know, you look in the mirror, you trust yourself. Uh, it's a useful power, to say the least, so that's why he's in at number 10. In at number 9, we have Remy Lobo uh, Gambit. Remy was um, abducted by the the Thieves um, Guild of New Orleans soon after his birth. He was raised to be a thief. He's had lots of adventures over the years. He's been around for a long, long time. Uh, He's been a bad guy. I get that. So he's been a bad guy for hire. He's been an X-Man. He's been Rogue's man, Rogue's husband. And he's even been a horseman of Apocalypse. He can charge small objects, normally playing cards with an unknown energy which explodes on impact. Is quite possibly the coolest X Man. We all know this. Um, he was one of the best characters in the nineties cartoon, which is getting a revival, and is probably the main reason that he's made the list. In at number eight, I have Magic. Elena Rasputin is the younger sister of Colossus, and she possesses the power to teleport herself and others across time and space. That in itself is just a cool power. I kind of feel like. You put that, you, t- you take her out of the equation and her power would still make the list if we were talking about powers and not the X-Man. The reason she's made the list is she, she's a kick-ass sorceress. She lived in limbo after being kidnapped for a long time. And, well, you know, I know she was a prisoner there, I get that. But she come out swinging, she has a cool sword and always seems to be drawn amazingly. So, same as more from number 10. Her artwork in the 2012 Uncanny X-Men is what drew me to the character in the first place. At number 7, we have Gold Balls, a.k.a. Egg. Fabio Medina, you know, he now goes by Egg, and his character character first appeared in Uncanny X-Men in 2013. He was created by Brian Michael Bendis and Chris Bacello. Yes, another mutant from the Bendis Uncanny X-Men run. Art and story are always key to me liking a character, so... That's all I'm going to say. And it winds me up when the artwork changes in the next issue or you can see the character is done in 180 because the next writer doesn't like the, what the previous guy has done to the character. This run is one of my favourite X-Men runs, hence the, why such a you know, such a new character has made the list closer to the top, top spot more than Magic and Gambit. Um, he has the ability to fire gold-shaped eggs from his body. He has no idea what he's doing or how to use his power. He actually doesn't want to be any part of it in the beginning. Becoming a mutant was completely caught him off guard. In the most recent incarnation of the comic, he is one of the most important mutants on the planet, as he and four others have the ability, when combining their powers, to bring mutants back from the dead. His job is to produce an egg for mutant rebirth, which then gets implanted by one of the other members of the five, so he's a great character and probably wouldn't have been an X-Man if Cyclops hadn't been desperate at the time. His power, when you think about it, is one of the most important mutants on the planet. So that's why he's made the list for me. At number six, I have Rogue. She was born with one of the best powers and the worst, with the worst drawback. 
She can absorb anyone's ability or life or life force by touching them, but she has no control over it in the beginning, meaning that she can't hold anyone's hand, can't hug a loved one. You know, she's recently gained control of her ability, and you know, through it was it was something psychic holding her back, basically. So she can now touch anyone she wants without killing them. Good news for her husband Gambit. She has been around since 1981 and has been a prominent member of at least one of the X-Men teams over the years. I think that my enthusiasm for Rogue came from the 2004 run of X-Men, where she was the team leader and leading their ragtag team of X-Men, including Iceman, Cannonball and Mystique and a few others. She played a huge part in the 90s animated series, X-Men Evolution from the 2000s, and even the first two X-Men films where she at least attended the final fight in some capacity. She was obviously underused in the film, so hopefully where they can do something about the future of the MCU, I would especially like a new cool actress to absorb Carol Danvers' abilities and get rid of Brie Larson altogether. That would be nice. In at number five, I have another new mutant appearing um, at a similar time to Gold Balls. Tempest. Eva Bell is an Australian mutant with the ability to control time. Yes, another new mutant from the Bendis run. I get that. I get that. I'm going on about two particular runs of the X-Men at the moment. But they're my favourite runs, so that that's where I'm going to get my information from. I obviously have a soft spot for the error. Um, Eva can stop time with a, within a bubble. She can accelerate time, which makes her one of the five. So she hair like um, like gold balls. She she accelerates the growth of the husks inside the inside Goldie's eggs, um, up to the age of the person the person was when they died. So they're not coming back as a baby; they're coming back as a fully grown adult or whenever they died. Um, she can time travel. She she's always drawn amazingly. She's just a really cool. I'd love to see Krakoa and the Five turn up in the MCU at some point. In at number four, we have everyone's favourite Canadian, Wolverine. So Wolverine was born James Howler in 1832. His, power, his mutant power awakened when he was 13, so he stabs the, the family groundskeeper and kills it you know, for killing his father. Uh, only to find out that the groundskeeper is in fact his biological father. Shock horror. He fought in wars and countless fights. Um, he's taken down people who were unkillable. He has a healing factor, retractable claws that come out of his knuckles, um, which now, you know, he has adamantium bound to his skeleton, so he's even more indestructible. He has a great sense of smell and keen senses. Um, most recently, he, he's got really hot claws. I'm not sure if that one works for me, but whatever. It worked in some capacity, I'm sure. My favourite book with Wolverine in it has to be the Civil War X-Men. The art the art takes Wolverine to a different place in my head. So if you ever get a chance, that will probably be one of the books to read before you die, but not today. He's been an X-Banner Avenger, the assassin, he's a ninja. He's, he's a pretty cool character. And I know a lot of people would have him closer to the top spot, but for me, he just doesn't cut it. I think they've overdone him in the films. Yeah, he is the best that he is the best there is at what he does. Never forget that though. In at number three, and probably a controversial choice as he seems to be despised by quite a lot of people, is Cyclops. To me, Scott Summers is a misunderstood character. He, he does need to loosen up, we all get that, but he um, he was made team leader of a team of mutants when he was a teenager. He was given the responsibility of keeping their hands clean and making it so that mutants weren't persecuted. To me, I kind of feel like he was given the hardest job of any X-Man. 
because he was only young when he was given the job. So, obviously, he's made plenty of hefty mistakes over the years. He has an eye for problematic women, definitely. All of that and dealing with the you know his powers essentially being broken. The man can't open his eyes without glasses or a visor, without obliterating everything in front of him and causing you know countless dis- destruction, damage. You know his optic blasts are problematic. So for someone who is is wrote as the leader and he's always got an eye for what he needs to do, I kind of feel like someone with a broken power, but you know. It adds another another layer to his character. He's another X-Men that I like from the Bendis run. So, you know, I wouldn't even say that I'm pro-Bendis. I'm pro a writer who gets it right. That's all. So, um, I like a writer that does a great story. And the artwork has to match the story. Which, obviously, in this particular run, it did for me. Let's be honest. X-Men The Last Stand didn't do Cyclops any, any, any good in my eyes. As he, you know... As he was wiped out pretty early. And to be fair with the visor problems in X-Men 1 and 2. They never utilised the character properly. They finally utilise him right in Dark Phoenix. But the film is a letdown in other ways. I look forward to the leader of the X-Men coming back to the big screen as soon as possible. At number 2, one of my personal favourites and everyone's favourite cool guy, Iceman. Bobby Drake is an Omega level mutant, which means that no one comes close to using ice powers like him. He has been the comedy relief, the saviour and a powerhouse. He has come out as gay over the recent years, which I've said earlier, you know, if you've read any of Bobby's stories over the year, it came out of the blue. I feel like they picked a prominent character within an already established book and outed him for no reason, but... Yeah, it seems to have gone down well. Good for them. Um, this seems to be the way they are doing things at the moment, which I don't agree with. I kind of feel like if a character is gay, great, that's fine. I feel like they just picked his name out of a hat and that was it, though. Bobby's powers are that great that he can literally put himself back together if he's broken apart. His run back in 2004 onwards is great, so I'm back to, you know the 2004 run of X-Men there, so his artwork and that, it's great, and it's it's gotten better, I kind of feel like he stays in his ice form a lot more than back in the day, and he's he almost has a spiky, you know, monstrous appearance at some points, his film appearance in Last Stand is where we got to see his powers come through fruition, and let's be honest, he was great in Days of Future Past, so I look forward to seeing him on the big screens again. And in at number one, and my favourite X-Man in the top spot due to his 2000 run, is Cannonball. Sam Guthrie was born in Kentucky and can generate a thermochemical field around his body, which repels him like a rocket through the air and can protect him from harm, making him near invulnerable. He is part of the X-Men legacy. He's he's a legacy family. So his brothers and sisters, they're all X-Men in some capacity. In fact, I think he might have the most siblings that are on X-Men teams and none of which are villains. Sam has been around since 1982 and hasn't got the respect he deserves in films up to now in my eyes. Or as much respect as he deserves in the comics to be fair. He's got a crappy interpretation in New Mutants which had all but been scrapped by the studio before Disney's takeover. He's better than what he got. My enthusiasm for Sam comes from the 2000 run on X-Men. I've said it earlier as well. So, if you're looking for books to read, which I'm sure I will get to them on Comics to Read Before You Die, as I was, I've 
big them up enough over this segment. Read the 2004 run of X-Men and the 2013-14 run of Uncanny X-Men, both of which are brilliant. The artwork's great in it as well. Sam has been a new, has been a new mutant, part of the X-Force under Cable, an X-Man and an Avenger. He wears cool goggles. I promise they are cool. When I say goggles, it sounds a bit weird, but they're cool. So all in all, he's my favourite X-Man and tops the list. Next up, I have what I'm watching this week. So this week, I'm re-watching. So I'm saying re-watching because I've watched it a few times now. So Cyberpunk Edge Runners. This is not the first time I've watched the series, as I've just said. And it's for a good reason. I was not a huge fan of the cyberpunk genre before I watched this, other than old school films like Akira. The series is set in Night City, which is a self-reliant metropolis in California. Gangs occupy the street and cybernetics are the key to survival, leading to a cybernetic addiction and maybe even psychosis from the cybernetics. The city is controlled by rival megacorporations Arasaka and Militech. The series is mainly set in Santa Domingo, which is the oldest, poorest district in the, in Night City. The series follows David, who is trying to navigate his new life uh, after his mother is killed in a gang-related car accident. After his mother's death, he loses everything, so he loses his apartment, he's getting kicked out of school, it's all going bad for him. So while going through his mother belong- mother's belongings, he finds a military-grade cybernetic prosthetic, which you know, as you would do, he surgically bonds to his spine because that's the, that's the way to go of all things. The prosthetic gives him speed beyond his imagination, but he can only use it a few times a day. After a gang who the prosthetic was supposed to go to find David, he ends up working with them, becoming an edge runner. So an edge runner is an outlaw, basically. Um, the series shows what addiction can do using cybernetic enhancements rather than drugs and alcohol. So, you know, people start losing their minds because they get addicted to, you know, cybernetic implants that eventually they, they're more cybernetic than they are human. Um, has great am- animation and visuals. The animation where David uses his speed is spectacular and the cityscape, you know, you know the backgrounds are great in it. The series doesn't shy away from the blood and gore. Um, watching several characters getting their heads blown off, killed. Great characters who all but a few died during the season. If there is going to be a season two, there will be a whole new class and new plot. Um, it left a few things open here and there that you could jump back into. It's a great series and more than deserving of having a place in one of the best cyberpunk series of all time. So I highly recommend it. I have also this week rewatched The Batman. I may be in the minority, but I actually liked Robin, Robert Pattinson's portrayal of Batman. Not so much his portrayal of Bruce Wayne, but I think the Batman that he portrayed is awesome. He has the detective side and the brute vigilante side that we all like to see. Yeah, with heavy ties to Batman Year One and Two, I've talked about them in a previous podcast, and you can see it in the journal style that Bruce adopts when he's chronicling the night his nights fighting crime. I love it. I love his relationship with Jim Gordon in this as well. I kind of feel like it takes it to a different level. Jim takes a lot of flack for being associated with a known vigilante. The story does take a while to get going for me. And I felt that when I was in the pictures, it's a long film for it to take so long to get going. Um, it builds up a lot of the movie just to get to the Riddler's Endgame, which, you know, as you know, as if someone who's gone the pictures to watch a film, you you want it to get going maybe slightly quicker than it did, but it is still great a great film. I still stand by it, and I'm still looking forward to the season. Yeah, you know, a second a second film. 
I love his bat suit in it. It's not as pristine as the usual ones and could have almost been homemade, which I feel gives him a little bit more credibility as, you know, oh my God, you know, he must have loads of money. It's got to be Bruce Wayne because he's the only one who could have money to be Batman. I kind of feel like, realistically, it wouldn't take you long to figure out with all the gadgets and the cars and the planes that it has to be someone who's minted to be Batman. The film centers around Batman, who's in his second year of crime fighting, who uncovers corruption while chasing down the Riddler. The Riddler has taken it upon himself to target Gotham's corrupt elite. Colin Farrell plays the Penguin in it, um, and he uses prosthetics and makeup to change his appearance completely. If I'm honest, if you didn't know it was Colin Farrell, you wouldn't assume it was Colin Farrell whatsoever. The only issue I have with him playing the Penguin in, you know, in the Batman is that he didn't have a bigger part. Although I assume that they've done that on purpose and he'll appear in the second movie with hopefully a bigger part to play. And it's always nice to see people reprise their roles because some superhero movies tend to get rid of the previous antagonists um, and you might never talk about them again. There have been a few films where a villain has shown up and maybe only one or two where they reuse a villain altogether. All in all, great film. Worth a watch. Does take a while to get going, so give it a go. Next up, I have comics to read before you die. With all the talk about The Flash last week, it got me thinking about the fact that some of the best comics I've read involve the main character dying. So over the next few weeks, I'll be going through my top comics to read before you die involving the protagonist's death. I'm going to start with one that's still quite raw for me at the moment. So Jason David Frank tragically passed away last year. He brought years of joy to children around the world. So if you don't know who Jason David Frank was, he was the original Green and White Ranger from Power Rangers. He's been the longest serving Power Rangers and a hero to most geeks during the 90s. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the Boom Studios comic, has some great issues and stories. So none more so than the comic that I'm about to talk about. So the comic we're going to talk about today is Mighty Morphin Power Rangers Shattered Grid. So Shattered Grid shows Lord Draken, an evil alternate version of Tommy Oliver, who stays evil after the original Power Rangers release him from Rita Repulsa's control. So if you're anything like me, you you must yeah, and you watch Power Rangers in the 90s. Even if you're not, you can re-watch them on Netflix at the moment. So back in the day, they had this, the, the best episodes of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers came from Green with Evil. So it brought in Tommy Oliver as a new candidate to be a Power Ranger and Rita Repulsa has a power coin. She makes him a evil Green Ranger and he starts terrorising the Power Rangers. The Power Rangers eventually win and they bring Tommy back to the side of good. He then joins the team as the sixth Ranger and fulfills the prophecy. In this alternate universe he is Basically, the the same thing happens. The Rangers free him from Rita's control, but instead of turning good, he stays evil. So he then goes away and he wages war against the Rangers of that world and he kills Jason, the original Red Ranger, as he's becoming the White Ranger. So in that universe, Jason is picked to be the White Ranger to you know, counteract Tommy's war against them. So the Tommy of that world absorbs the White Ranger power and becomes Lord Draken using a combination of the Green and White Ranger powers. The Rangers of the main universe fight him initially and win and they, they, they unbeknownst to them, they strand him in their universe. So Grace Sterling, who's the 1960s Red Ranger, 
which is another story for another time, captures Draken and locks him away. Draken eventually escapes and kills Tommy Oliver of the main universe by stabbing him in the back with Saba. So one of the main characters of that year of you know, you know, of the book has just been killed off. You know, you didn't see it coming. You don't you assume that things are gonna go the same way that the actual the series has gone, but actually the comic can do exactly what it likes. It brings in a darker tone, it's brilliant. Draken then goes about conquering the multiverse, killing, capturing, killing and capturing as many rangers as he can while stealing their powers. Draken becomes the biggest threat to the Power Rangers that they've ever fought, ever, you know, through the series, through the comic books. Literally the biggest, the biggest threat that they've ever faced. It leads to extreme battles using nearly every ranger ever created. The nostalgia you feel from these comics is insane. It feels like I'm transported back to a time when Power Rangers were life and all I wanted to do was say it's morphing time and, you know, it'd be a great break time in school. The, yeah, the geeky side of me is loving the series, which just gets better and better, none more so than this comic, which broke the trope that the Power Rangers were invincible and they couldn't die. Killing the best-known ranger on the planet was one way of bringing the darkness of the comic to a new, a new and exciting level. Shattered Grid was published in November 2019, and the events of the storyline are still being talked about today, and even has Draken being a key character in recent storylines. The timeline was reset and Tommy Oliver from the main universe lives, um, which is a comic trope, you know, that most, you know, comic book characters who die, they get brought back. We've seen it with Miss Marvel recently. She's literally been brought back with, well, a couple of weeks since she died. I think that might be one of the quickest rebirths that we've ever seen. Unfortunately, Uncle Ben is still dead. Power Rangers is definitely one of the best books about at the moment, and Shattered Grid is definitely a book that you should read before you die. Lastly today, I have the character of the week. So, my character of the week today is a character who I believe got a bit shafted over the last few years in the MCU. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel James Rhodes. Rhodey, as he's called, debuted in the Marvel Comics in 1978 in Iron Man number 118. He grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and was subject to racist abuse from the white children. Black gangs eventually targeted him due to the fact that he chose to study and get an education over joining them. He eventually joined the Marines, becoming a pilot, a pilot stationed overseas. Rhodey met Tony Stark by chance when his plane was taken down by a rocket. Tony turned up in the Iron Man armor, and the two have been allies ever since. So Rhodey's had a plethora of jobs, including mercenary, until he accepted a job at Stark Industries, becoming Tony's personal pilot and chief aviation engineer. He helped Iron Man years before he donned, donned any armour, fighting Roxxon, Justin Hammer and Dreadnoughts alike. He even stepped up and became Iron Man when Tony was struggling with his alcoholism. He was Iron Man for quite a long time while Tony was getting himself right, proving his worth and yeah, worth as a hero, and he joined the West Coast Avengers. He suffered from severe headaches due to the cybernetics in the armor not being calibrated for his brain chemistry. I kind of feel like this storyline was wrote in so that they could eventually replace him back with Tony. I kind of feel like realistically Tony's supposed to be a genius. You'd think he'd know that there were, you know, you know, the cybernetics in the suit wouldn't link to another person. Surely that's a, you know, a security thing. I don't know. Um, his 
his behaviour becomes more and more erratic with the headaches, and he becomes to, he begins to hallucinate that Tony disapproves of him and wanted the armour back. Tony eventually armors up and stops Rhodey from rampaging, therefore bringing him back into the Iron Man you know, fold. Rhodey leaves after this, searching for a cure for headaches, which he finds. After a few close calls after that, it leads him to having PTSD, and he resigns as the substitute Iron Man. So that becomes one of his first times that he, he quits altogether. It's not going to be the last. After Tony was fatally wounded and placed in a cryo sleep, he becomes the CEO, Rhodey becomes the CEO of Stark Industries, becoming War Machine and taking Tony's place on the West Coast Avengers. So during this time as War Machine, he's attempted to free peace activists, stop armoured hunters, he's acquired alien armour and retired yet again. This seems to be what he likes to do. Rhodey was hired by the Office of National Emergency, also called One, to keep the mutants in line after M-Day. Not as, you know, I don't think that's his most heroic thing that he's ever done. Um, Most of the mutants on M-Day were decimated by the Scarlet Witch, so there's only about 300 left in the world. He's got robotic limbs... um, and part of his face, you know, since Civil War, he got his his arm blown off, and part of his part of his face. So he's got robotic parts all over him now. He's played a part in repelling a Skrull armada um, during Secret Invasion comic series. Yeah, not the not the TV series, which it would have been cool to see. He's been a hero, a mercenary, a pilot, and most importantly, a survivor. He even went on a suicide mission to stop the Phoenix Force, which failed, leading to more roadie stories thankfully he has never moved too far away from tony still working for him to this day as a liaison to the armed forces he's decorated with a purple heart medal of freedom his mcu counterpart has probably had it rougher than him over the last few years seeing how he's been unconscious for years he also lost the use of his legs during the captain america civil war Ideally, now the MCU's Tony has passed, Rhodey might get some more stories centred around him. God knows he's probably a little bit perturbed with the scrolls at this point in time. Either way, I feel Rhodey deserves a little love seeing how he's been done dirty in the Secret Invasion series. I'm Matt, and this has been the Glasses by Day Geek by Night podcast. See you next time.